The Premier League season is over, but we still have the FA Cup final, Champions League and the Europa League to come. And Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score a number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from the Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello Joe Devine. We had fun today because we were joined by Greg Evans, the Athletics Aston Villa correspondent. Uh, with Greg, we talked about what, Seb? Pretty much everything. Greg was great. We did a little bit of a, um, uh, an autopsy on the season. Uh, we talked about Christian Perslow, Douglas Luiz, Jack Grealish, um, the change in sporting director. Actually, we even talked about the differences between a sporting and technical director, which was very interesting. We, we did do that, didn't we? Yeah, and we also talked we about We talked Dean about Smith. the sleeping giant thing. Yeah, that was very interesting too. No, it was. Uh, I enjoyed this one. Um, it was uh, an excellent episode that uh, rattles along. Lots to dig your teeth into, and I would say also I, I, I'm enjoying covering some of the clubs in the who are currently in the lower half of the Premier League because I find that there are a lot of themes that uh, that cross between clubs. So I would say, I mean, I'm not just trying to get everyone to listen, but I would say if you if you've started listening to this not as an Aston Villa fan, do continue because it is it's it's not just for fans of the club, and uh, we work quite hard to ensure that uh, it's of interest to a broad range of people. I hope you will agree. Um, and do you know who else works quite hard to hope that their product is a, of interest to a broad range of people, Seb? Is it The Athletic, Joe? It is The Athletic. And did you know there's a 30-day free trial? Uh, you can go to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO uh, to sign up for your 30-day free trial, uh, read to your heart's content. And Seb, there's a few interesting things that these uh, these listeners might want to read. Yeah, I, sp- I started my day reading uh, Chris Woff's interview with Amanda Staveley, obviously front and centre of, um, of the Newcastle takeover story. Um, fascinating, because I don't think I've ever read anything substantial about Staveley. Um, and Chris did a really fine job. George Corkin is also, you know, covering the story. And George Corkin is George Corkin. We know this. Um, brilliant writer. Um, and Matt Slater's obviously been um, uh, along for the ride too, giving analysis on the uh, the different states of the takeover. And it's been fascinating. A really good job by The Athletic. Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, they're, they're all genuinely very good. So do visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. You can sign up for that 30-day free trial. And enjoy yourself in the summer heat. Stay inside. Close the curtains. Turn the lights off. Don't be near the sun. It's dangerous in the sun. Yeah? It's it's horrible in the sun. Well, it's very hot sun, today. Yeah, I mean, I think I've like, gone. Uh, you know, I think I, my I mean, brain close has to the sun is quite dangerous. In the sun is is also very dangerous. Yes, it's it's north of thirty degrees Celsius in London today, gang. I'm sort of very quickly becoming just a, a puddle of sludge on the floor. And we'll end with that. Uh, so uh, thanks for downloading today's episode. Uh, we will now leave you in the uh, the warm hands and the cool embrace of Greg Evans. director uh, Jesus Garcia Pitarch or Suso as uh, everyone seems to know him as uh, left the club last week and will play no real part in the rebuild so Greg 
Was this a decision purely based on the recruiting? Because there's a consensus that his relationship with the CEO, Christian Perslow, was difficult. Is that true? Yeah, so the the relationship between the two of them soured in the second half of the season. Um, the noises coming out of Villa uh, was that he, that Suso's position was going to be under review at the end of the season regardless. Um, I mean, what we have to remember is Villa, Villa struggled for a large part of the season, didn't they? And they, they hired 12, 13 new players um, and the majority of them were really struggling to perform in the Premier League. So... Re- <laughs> It feels like it was around about February, March time where recruitment started to become a real hot topic and and it was the kind of, the feeling was that, well, if Villa had recruited better, then they'd have been performing better this season, you know, and, and the pressure was almost switching from Dean Smith more on to Suso. Um, and, yeah, you know, that, that, that carried on really up until the final days of the season and then Villa somehow got over the line and survived and, and then within a day Suso had gone. He decided that he couldn't work no longer um, at the club and, and and that he would be going moving on to, to doing another thing and, and obviously Villa have, have, have moved to, to replace him already. Greg, was there a particular deal, do you think, which, um, which soured his relationship with the club specifically? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think it'd be hard to pinpoint it to one deal just because Villa were so active in the in the transfer market during his time at the club. Um, I think if you if you look at some of the deals that he was largely in charge of, it was more of the the players coming from uh, foreign countries. Villa recruited heavily from Belgium. Um, they obviously bought their record signing Wesley from from Belgium for twenty two million. Uh, he'd scored five goals in 21 games, but was coming under a little bit of criticism from supporters. Um, hadn't really settled into the Premier League. That was maybe one of the signings that wasn't quite working. Uh, Trezeguet was a, a winger who, in and out throughout the season, again coming under criticism. But to be fair to him, scored, scored some really important goals at the end of the season. And then there were others, you know, Lovra Kalinic was the goalkeeper who first, he's Suso's first signing at the club and he was signed for £7 million and hardly featured. And um, he kind of felt like it was going that way. But I think in his defence, Villa had to rebuild so many times when, when, when they failed to get promoted in 2018. The, the the whole landscape changed and they had to rebuild the squad again and then when they got up to the Premier League they had seven or eight players who were who were old and out of out of contract that they had to move on and then they had to go and recruit again so I think if you speak to any technical director or any scout or any manager and you know I've spoken to many over the the last couple of years certainly then they will tell you if if you sign twelve players in one transfer window. If you can get seven or eight of those to perform, you've done really, really well. Now, without actually going through the whole group, I'd say Villa probably had five or six that that were performing well, and maybe that just isn't quite enough. So, talking of technical directors, um, Suso's successor has been announced. What do we um, What do we actually know about Johan Lang? Yeah, well, um, it was quite a surprise, really. It was a bit of a left field. It was quick, wasn't it? It was really quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the messages I, would, I was getting was that Villa were going to act quick. They were going to appoint somebody. But, I mean, it, I didn't expect it to be this quick. I thought that they'd you know, they'd take the time, um, you know, assess their options. And, and, and then maybe in a week or two or, or even longer, they'd appoint somebody. But, look, Johan mm. Lang, Lang is the man that's come in. He's 40 years old. Um 
he'll be known at Villa as the sporting director rather than the technical director. I mean, I know it's very minor, but that's what he was at, <laughs> at Copenhagen. Um, so what he, are he those differences, Greg, even if they are minor? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I mean, look, you know, his role at Villa will, will be getting the best out of the academy, overseeing the scouting and recruitment department, um, but helping to sort of further enhance like the culture at the club and, and maybe working a bit closer with Dean Smith on, on a brand of football that's attractive on the eye, where, where as a technical director, you, you don't focus so much on like the playing style of things. So that's that's maybe the, the slight difference, but it's very minor. I think it's just more um, a term. But, you know, anyway, going back to his time at, at Copenhagen, he was there for six years worked under Stoller Solbakken who was the who, who's the coach the long-serving coach there and and and, and was also he was actually also his assistant at Wolves so he's known in the Midlands and mm-hmm. I, I did did a little bit of work in, in my previous job covering Solbakken's um, period at Wolves which was um, I can't think of a word to describe it but very uh, not not great <laughs> I, I can't <laughs> not great I, can, but I don't think I'm going to use that word on on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I can't say I can remember much of him at Wolves, and I certainly didn't deal with him then. And, uh, and yeah, and as I say, a, a guy who's, who's come over, and the, the majority of Aston Villa fans won't know too much about him. I mean, the things that appeal to Villa about him are that he's managed to recruit players, or at least uh, assist in the recruitment of players who are very young, and have come into the first team at Copenhagen and then been sold on for a profit. Now, that's not necessarily the way that Villa are trying to operate, but they're certainly looking to do that in the academy. They're, they're sourcing the best 15, 16, 17-year-olds across the world um, at the moment. They're really making a big push. Um, and I feel that the new sporting director will have a, will have a big part to play in that. It'll be interesting to see what he can do with a bigger budget because at Copenhagen, they always had to think a little bit different. They had to think a bit outside the box. You know, they were okay. They were a a big major force in in the Danish league, but to regularly compete in the Champions League, um, and I think they have done out of 13 of the last 14 seasons, they had to to think differently. So they were going into sort of different markets, you know, your Slovakias and um, areas like that and, and signing players and then moving them on for a profit, I think. I suppose Robert Scov is probably the best example. Um, the, the the Danish forward who who moved from moved to Hoffenheim for nine point five million, and and Dennis Vavaro also um, moved to Lazio for a similar fee. So I think that's what Villa have noticed that that he's been able to get players in and move them on for a profit. So let's hope he can do the same at Villa. You mentioned earlier about sort of the transience that was created last summer um, out of necessity because they had so many gaps to fill. What do you expect it to be like this time around? Because do you think they'll be sort of um, reticent of encouraging the same kind of scenario or do you think there'll be um, some major surgery? Yeah, I think that Villa are in quite a strong position now because they signed a lot of players that were 26 years old or under. Um, Those players have now had a full season in the Premier League. So the majority of them now have got that experience behind them they've got um th- th- some of them have increased in value so if they did want to move on the ones who they feel are, are not performing as well as they should have um villa will probably get the same amount or more back for them um and i think they're just in a strong position because they can critically analyze the squad now and look at it and think okay there's probably two or three areas where we underperform this season so those are the areas where we're going to go big in the next transfer window, we're going to look at 
15 to 25 million pound players and 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 um and recruit those and and I feel if Villa can do that if they get maybe one or two new strikers in a winger um then they can really kick on next season because the platform is actually already there I feel like they have got quite a solid a solid base already and the key is just recruiting right because if you go and spend 100 million pound on four players they have to perform for you can't be in the same situation where Villa are getting towards the last stages of the season next season and thinking the players that we've signed haven't quite done it for us yet. With that regard then, let, let's talk about Christian Perslow's role because he's a, he's a contrasting character. Um, he was the Liverpool managing director who voted in favour of, of selling to Hicks and Gillette but also the head of global commercial activities at Chelsea to plenty of acclaim. In your opinion, Greg, what has been his effect on Villa so far? I think broadly speaking, he's done well at Villa because you, you can't you can't really knock the guy too much when uh, he's come in and it was his decision to sack Steve Bruce. Um, that was controversial at the time amongst some quarters. The fans had certainly turned on Steve Bruce and 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 Christian Perslow's thought was this this Villa Park uh, this Villa Park crowd want this manager out, so I need to make a change. It was him. His that it was then his decision to bring in Dean Smith, and since then Villa have won promotion. And stayed up in the Premier League, so under his watch, they're going quite well. Um, he's obviously you, know, you mentioned the Liverpool thing there. He's obviously hired and fired managers before. It was it was um, uh, Benitez, of course. Yeah, it was Rafa Benitez, who he got rid of and, and recruited Roy Hodgson. Um, and then at Chelsea, his work was a little bit different. It was behind the scenes. You know, he, he secured some really impressive sponsorship contracts at Chelsea, um, well worth well over the one billion pound mark. And that's the aim that he's. That's what he's trying to do at Villa now. Uh, the aim at Villa is to close the gap on the big six in the division by increasing revenue streams year on year, um, and then developing as a club. Now, to some outsiders, that might sound like a little bit of an ambitious. Well, a not realistic aim, but it's it's an ambitious aim, yeah. But it, it is realistic because Villa are a very big club. They're I hate this word, but they are a sleeping giant. Um, and if they can get it right, then uh, you know that the, the the future could be very successful. So I just think that I think that he's done a, a he's done a decent job. You know, he, he's he's worked hard to. One of the first things he did when he came into the club was was um, identify that the the women's section needed to improve the the women's team and they won promotion this year and he's also looking at the increase improving the academy as well so there's a lot of hard work that he puts in behind the scenes and maybe sometimes doesn't always get the the praise that he deserves can I ask a question I mean I don't know if we can really uh, answer this because obviously this is, this is about what one person's um a- a- ambitions but am I wrong to think about these uh, backroom staff roles in the same way that I would think about footballers? So, for example, we're talking about Christian Perslow, who's worked at Liverpool before, he's worked at Chelsea before. If if he were a footballer and he moved to Villa, I would see that as a step down, right? <laughs> Purely because Villa are at the, at the other end of the, the league compared to these these uh, these two other clubs we've mentioned. Is that is that the right way of looking at it with with these sort of CEO roles or in some cases a sporting director roles? Or am I or I do I need to turn turn it on its head, Greg. What do you think? <laughs> no, I think generally speaking, that, I mean, it's the right way to look at it. I think you rarely, um, you would rarely, if you're a CEO of, say, I don't know, Liverpool, as we're speaking about, you would rarely drop down unless you've underperformed in your job. But the difference with Christian Perslow at Aston Villa is that he's also a minority investor. So he's actually got an even bigger role than, than, than just simply the CEO. And it, it was a question that I asked him uh, when he very first moved to the club. I said, 
you know, basically what you've just said to me, Liverpool, Chelsea, Aston Villa. Right. Doesn't what are you doing here? Up. Yeah, yeah. What, you know, what, what are you actually doing here? You know, in the championship, of course, at the time as well. And, um, uh, and he said, well, I wouldn't have come to this club purely as CEO. And I thought, right, okay, fair enough. Um, and, you know, he, he revealed at the point then that, that he had a minority investment in the club. Uh, so, right. obviously, Villa's, Villa's success is he's, he's felt even greater by him because if they're successful, you know, he's, he's making money on it as well. Well, in that case, that brings me on to, to talk about ownership too. So, in Wes Edens and Nassif Suarez, we have a collective wealth of around $7.5 billion. What are their long-term plans for the club, do you think? And, and how will that wealth insulate Villa from the challenges facing football um, in the post-pandemic world as well? Yeah, sure. 7.5 billion. Wow, it's an incredible figure, isn't it? It's a lot incredible. of money. It's bigger than my salary. That's all I'll say. Yeah, yeah. Mine too. Mine too over my lifetime. <laughs> Time's about a yeah. million. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how far back you'd have to go in the generations of our ancestors, just within our oh, family wow. unit before you got to probably never probably anyway there you go some, pe some people have got it what are they going to do with it Greg yeah that's the key that's the big question isn't it I mean the message I consistently hear from management staff at Villa is that the club are in incredibly safe hands um, I was asking the question just before the the final few games of the season what happens if Villa get relegated because at that point it was a serious concern um, and, and Dean Smith's reply simply was that the club are in safe hands. There's there's no need to worry about the short term future of the club because our owners are ambitious. They're very very wealthy, two billionaires, um, and uh, and they'll see us through. But I think now Villa fans should not just fear for the future um, because of the financial crisis that, that that's gripping the world at the moment and 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 may continue to get even worse in the future. But I actually think that Villa fans should be very excited because. These two co-owners want to invest in the club. They want to push the club into the higher echelons of the Premier League um, and they're prepared to spend the money. So if you're a fan, I think that's great to hear and, and something you can get really excited about. Great. What's the relationship like between Edens and Sawiris? They seem like quite an unlikely pairing. Um, so do you have any any insight on, on kind of their, their working relationship day to day with reference to Villa? You know, look, they're two very, very extremely successful um, businessmen, so them, those are the things that they've got in common more than anything. Um, Wes Eden spends the majority of his time in America. Um, and Steve Suarez has a base in London, and he also you know stretches across other other areas of the of the country, but uh, sorry of the world. But I feel like Nasif is more of the hands-on type of um, owner. I think he, he deals with. Um, the football side of, of things more more often. Uh, the two of them are obviously still very very engaged. You know they're they're in daily conversations with Christian Perslow, who's the man who effectively runs the the club, and and both of them were sending Dean Smith individual personalised messages before uh, the final few games of the season, just asking him to pass on their message to the players, um, which I thought was a nice touch because they can't get over here at the moment. Um, but yeah, the two of them as uh, as a pair, you know, they're, they're quite private. You know, I haven't had many dealings with them, so um, still learning about them all the time. <laughs> can, I, can I ask you directly about the sleeping giant thing, right? Because I get why you <laughs> sort of cringe at saying it, uh, and I feel so like cringy. there are... There are a number of clubs in this in this position, you know, and even as far down the leagues as Sunderland, let's say, you still feel sleeping giant. To a certain extent, it, 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 you know, we can understand why it might make someone cringe. But at the same time, there is value 
in that type of um, uh, in that type of uh, uh, synopsis, right? Because I remember we did. Yeah. In fact, we talked about this last last week. We had uh, Andy Jones on to talk about Burnley. Um, I can't remember what magazine it was. The Burnley Express or something. A newspaper um, took a quote from one of our podcasts that we recorded about a year ago with um, a, a group of guys called Brand Finance, talking about how football clubs can be successfully commercially branded. Um, Burnley came up in the conversation, and the idea of Burnley being kind of plucky underdogs is something that these people think um, actually adds to the brand and makes them more saleable. Right? <laughs> in Villa's case, yeah. you have that immediately with the sort of sleeping giant thing. You have a huge fan base. You have a history of success. Uh, if if the ownership can get it right. All of that stuff stands the club in good stead in a way that uh, a club which hasn't been traditionally as successful wouldn't uh, wouldn't be the necessary beneficiaries of. So, do do you think that's true? I do. Yeah. Just thinking about Villa. I mean, look, I, I've grown up in the area, so I, I knew what it was like uh, in the early days. You know, the early nineties when Villa were a huge club and when they were you know genuinely challenging for Premier League titles. Um, they were they were always in the in the thick of the cup competitions, you know, winning it in nineteen ninety four, the League Cup, winning it in nineteen ninety six, got to the FA Cup final in two thousand. Um, obviously, in the in the first Premier League season, they were the runners up. And then you know you stretch further back again, it becomes a little bit more cringy because you get the modern football fans saying, "Oh, you won the European Cup," you know, we'll never rem- we'll never know that, will you? Because you always go on about it, um, and then you get the. Uh, but you know, the, the, this is a club that that has won the European Cup in in 1982, and it's you know the, there aren't many clubs in 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 the country that can say that. So they've always got that, um, they've always got that history, that tradition behind them. Hey Alex, did you know that this podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the expert in men's below the belt grooming? I'll be honest, no, not not until you just hit me with that. Seb, did you know that Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family aduels? Precision is important in that area. It very much is. It yes. very much is. And I'm, I'm excited today, gang, because Manscaped has just launched in the UK. We've gone years without using the right tools for the job over here. So you could be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. And that's life-changing in a good way, gang. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents. And the water-resistant technology also allows you to groom whilst in the shower. I'm a multitasker, so I like to do everything at once. Uh, And we've got a special offer right now for all of you listening to this podcast. Get 20% off and free shipping right now by using the code EPL20. That's EPL20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code EPL20. Happy shaving, gang. But I think just going back to more current times, if you look at the the fan base, I mean, it's huge. They had to cap season tickets this season at 30,000. They had a waiting list of another 10,000. And and the reason they, they capped that, the reason they wanted to have um, a certain amount of tickets available is so that they can continue to grow the club so that they can get new supporters through the door and that's what they were finding this season um, I remember writing a story for The Athletic actually it was the Aston Villa versus Liverpool game and um, the, the theme that I took on the story was that this is the hottest game in the country right now you cannot get a ticket for this game and, and just before 
and, and the reason I knew that was because there were friends of mine that were asking me to get tickets and they quite regularly do and I can't always sort them out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it becomes one of these lot of things. I had to put a WhatsApp status on once saying, um, before, the, before the final, I had to put a WhatsApp status saying, I cannot get Wembley tickets. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and yeah. luckily, like, I think I, the messages stopped coming in there. But um, <laughs> just going back to that Liverpool game, yeah, when I was walking around the ground and there were so many fans, Villa fans and Liverpool fans trying to get tickets and it was just incredible mm. really and there were there were tickets like, you know, that there were no sort of touts selling them or anything and I just thought, wow, you know, this this club is, you know, it's huge now. There's so many, there's this broader appeal, there's so many people that want to yeah. come and see the games um, and as you say, I think, I just think if they can get it right, they, they can really go places because... Um, it wasn't so long ago, if we remember, you know, 2007, 2008, 2009, where Villa finished sixth back-to-back in, in, you know, in three seasons on the bounce. They were at the same level as Tottenham at the time. They were getting the same sort of points year on year as Manchester City. I, I know what happened at Manchester City changed, but the, the, there was no difference between Aston Villa and Tottenham Hotspur. And you look at it now, you know, one club's been to um, a Champions League final, the other club's been back in the Championship for three seasons, and there was no difference at one point. No, that wasn't even that long ago either. I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, I like to play a game in my head uh, called What If I Was a Public Investment Fund? And I didn't, you know, <laughs> and there was no moral quandary in the game. Uh, which club would I invest in? Uh, I've played this game for a long time. Newcastle and Leeds and Villa have always been at the at the top of the list. You know, the game's obviously more yeah. complicated now. Uh, but listen, we're going to hear from Alex Stewart uh, for a moment to, to discuss uh, uh, Aston Villa and some of their tactical aspects on the pitch. But do come back for the, the second half where we're going to talk about actual football and football players. Imagine that on a football podcast. Anyway, here's Alex Stewart. Okay, uh, Villa were conceding a lot of goals and then they tweaked something after the lockdown, didn't they, Alex? Um, they did tweak something. I mean, the, the first thing to say is that they managed to reduce their uh, expected goals against by almost half um, pre and post lockdown. Mm. So before lockdown, they were conceding um, about two expected goals per game. Uh, and that dropped to 1.04. So that's a massive, massive difference uh, in terms of what they've been able to do. And it's quite interesting if you look at um, the shot maps, and obviously post-lockdown is a relatively small sample size, but it's very clear from the shot maps that what they were able to do was reduce the number of shots that were occurring inside the box in dangerous areas. This obviously is the easiest way to reduce XG against because... The closer the shot is to the goal, the higher the XG value. Um, so by basically pushing up slightly, having a slightly more proactive defensive line, although I will caveat that in a second, they they managed to stop the number of shots um, that, that were occurring in and around the penalty area. Interestingly, in terms of sort of ratio-wise, the number of shots coming from outside the area didn't change an enormous amount, but that's fine because... They're, you know, they're more chancy efforts because they're further out. So they, they really did change something in their defensive system. We made a video about Villa uh, not too long ago, questioning whether or not they could avoid relegation. The feeling at the time was that they couldn't. Uh, and whilst the video doesn't say that directly, it does, uh, it does suggest that it would be very, very difficult for them to do so. 
they have done so. Is is it just their moving of the defensive line that is uh, that is to play for this? Um, obviously not entirely, because um, you know there are other teams around them, aren't they? So you know Watford kind of spectacularly imploded by sacking Nigel Pearson, who'd brought them from bottom place into seventeenth. Bournemouth were quite unlucky, and you know it only needed one West Ham goal for the the relegation thing to have been different. So it's not like, you know, <laughs> Villa achieved a monumental success or anything. But I, I think what They're you can... pretty exciting on the last day, though. I mean, you know, the, I, I would say 24 hours before the, the final whistle blew, anything could have happened. But it, it looked to me like Villa kind of escaped the grave almost. If you weren't paying attention to fixtures coming up, it looked like that. Oh, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, obviously, excitement... You know, um, but not your thing. it's no, not not entirely. But no, look, it 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 was impressive, and and I think what's interesting about it is that so in the in the video we talked about the need for um, reducing the space between the midfield and the defence, uh, trying to defend more proactively in terms of um, pushing forwards, pressing the ball, that kind of stuff. Now, interestingly, Villa didn't press more. Um, at all. In fact, pre the lockdown, they they were pressing at a higher rate than they were post. There's probably a reason to do with fitness and so on coming in there as well. I think there's, you know, I, probably teams all generally pressed a bit less. They made fewer blocks as well, but what they didn't do was they didn't slack off on their interceptions. By shifting the defensive line forward and still looking to target passing lanes for interceptions, but otherwise keeping a, a, a slightly passive defensive line but further away from the goal, uh, what Villa were able to do was reduce the opportunity that opponents had to get the box into the ball, uh, the ball into the box. And uh, the box okay, into the so ball is, is some, some feet. I know Villa did something special, but that, that really seems uh, out did. of the question. There's, there's one other interesting little point to make, which is that they, they reduced the number of errors leading to shots, not significantly, um, but by enough to even out at sort of two errors um, leading to shots over the course of that that small number of games post lockdown, so two errors leading to shots, potentially two goals. You know, just just by tightening up and concentrating and reducing errors, they potentially prevented two goals. Um, so that that's pretty important too. I, I think Tyrone Mings deserves a lot of credit for the way that he has both um, been an excellent passer of the ball, an excellent builder of moves from the back, but he really kind of led this slightly increased proactivity in the defensive line. Um, and, you know, Mings was playing a reasonable amount for England last season, and I think it's it's possibly unusual for a defender in a side that was flirting with relegation and was defensively quite troubled to still come out of that looking well with their, with their reputation largely intact but I think Mings has accomplished that um, Matt Target as well much more disciplined in, in the, the post-lockdown part of the season fewer forays forwards all of the time slightly less getting caught out of position so that that left-hand side particularly of Villa's really locked up um, after lockdown but yeah I mean it was it was very very tight and I still think that um, you know with with results being slightly different or or you know west ham getting a bit of luck in that final game or or what have you you know we we could be having a very different conversation but it is noticeable that dean smith tried to do certain things with the defense and they do appear to have worked 
With that sort of a team union then that we all witnessed towards the end of the season, what would your expectation be for Villa going into to next season now? I mean, they've survived the drop in the first year. That feels like a big accomplishment that gives a team and a club a lot more confidence. Um, presume, I mean, and, and worth pointing out that we record these uh, inserts before we record the rest of the podcast. So I haven't spoken to Greg about this yet, but I assume that the idea of Jack Grealish leaving is now not... Um, uh, as uh, as likely a possibility as it was when Villa looked like they were going to be relegated. So let's just say hypothetically Grealish um, sticks around and there's maybe money to spend in, in, in the transfer window. What, what would your expectations for Villa be next year? Um, I, th- I think it's difficult to see them being much different from where they are roughly now. Um, I think obviously holding on to Grealish is key. Um, they, they missed John McGinn uh, and his ball carrying and creativity during the significant portion of the season that he was injured. So I think, you know, they 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 were unlucky in some regards with that. Without question, they need a goal scorer um, because Wesley was brought in for a reasonable amount of money and hasn't really performed. I think he's he's cropped up with a couple of of goals that were good in games, you know, that he scored the winning goal or the decisive goal in a particular game, but there's not been sufficient consistency there. Um, obviously, they need to hold on to Mings as well. Uh, and and I think they, they probably want to sort out the goalkeeping situation. I mean, Nyland doesn't really inspire confidence. Rayner is, you know, getting on a little bit and did look better. But I, I think they, they probably, they've got a few areas where they need to upgrade. I don't think that they're going to be able to upgrade sufficiently to kind of catapult them up the table or have expectations that are that are markedly different from from what they had this season. But I also think that a, a realistic way of progressing into the Premier League in a way that guarantees safety is you do look to sort of, you know, incrementally push up. Uh, obviously, you've got an eye on the teams that are coming up as well and thinking, well, you know, we just have to be better than them and maybe one or two others. Um, so some additions, holding on to Grealish, holding on to McGinn and ensuring his fitness. And, and you know, Villa could could be looking to push up to something like 15th, maybe even 14th. But, but I think they're still going to be in and around this area next season. Hey, Seb, did you know that Harry's sponsors the TIFO Football Podcast? I do now. And Alex, did you know that as a listener of ours, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95? I have a beard, though. Yeah. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and a travel blade cover, simply by going to harrys.com forward slash TIFO right now. That's harrys.com forward slash TIFO. Okay, there was Alex Stewart. Great guy. Lots of fun. Uh, let's start again, Greg, uh, with goalkeepers, because on the 1874 uh, the Aston Villa Athletic Football Podcast, you talked about the goalkeeping situation at the club. Uh, Tom Heaton obviously won't return from injury in time for the new season. Pepe Reina was only at Villa Park on loan. And uh, Oyen Nyland probably probably isn't quite good enough. Are Villa taking action on this? Or is the plan just to wait until Heaton recovers? 
<laughs> yeah, goalkeepers, huh? Goalkeepers oh, and Aston Villa. Yeah. I, th- I felt like I've t- talked, spoken about and written about this topic um, <laughs> so many times this season. I mean, they've had, I think they had five goalkeepers at one point. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's crazy. But, um, okay, so let, let's go back to the start. So, Villa's recruitment drive last season, um, going into this season, so, uh, sorry, going into 2019-20 was, um, they, they were trying to get players under the age of 26 Um who were uh, who had the potential to to increase in value um, and also stick around at the club for a long time. The one exception to that was Tom Heaton. They felt that Heaton, with his Premier League experience, with the you know his, his um, international experience as well, slightly and um, and just the his type of a character, you know, he's an exceptional leader um, and somebody who really galvanises the group. They f- felt that if they could get him in on board, then he could be the one that sort of pulled all these relatively young players together. Um, I thought he was started the season really well. Uh, we got to New Year's Day and then he ruptured his cruciate ligament and will not feature again now until probably September or October. So Villa are yeah. in the situation where they not only lost their number one goalkeeper and their real big leader, um, they're also going into next season probably in the same boat. So Pepe Reina came in, I thought he struggled initially lost his place, then got back into the team and, and did quite well towards the end. Um, wouldn't rule out completely him not coming back. There, there's still a possibility, uh, although very unlikely at this stage, but Villa still might turn to him and, and maybe offer him something for next season. Uh, so if that would, that then leaves Jed Steer, Oyan Nyland and um, Lovra Kalinic. Jed Steer also was the playoff hero in 2019. Um, it's been a real strange situation for Jed Steer, really, because he's actually the longest-serving player at the club now, um, and he's hardly had his opportunity yet. When he was called upon in, in the promotion-winning campaign, he was fantastic, and without him, Villa wouldn't have got promoted. So on the face of it, I think if you could get Tom Heaton fit and Jed Steer back, that's safe for me. That's a solid goalkeeper, first choice with a good backup. And then um, I think the best idea then for a third goalkeeper is to have somebody relatively young and just try and get him progressing up towards first team level. But you've also got the worries thinking, well, this season Villa had two goalkeepers who were injured, one who lost form, um, one who dipped in and out of form. So maybe you do need three senior goalkeepers, which would make me think that Villa might have to actually go and buy another goalkeeper because <laughs> I, don't, I don't think <laughs> and I'm thinking how am I going to write this how am I going to justify that Villa need a third another oh, just get Brad Friedel back just get Friedel back in there and the problem will yeah, solve itself really. he can still I'm sure oh. he can still play <laughs> can I say it as well at this point that I, I will always uh, whatever Jed Steer does with his career and however he's remembered when he finishes I will always remember him for his time at Norwich when the three senior goalkeepers <laughs> were Rudd, Ruddy and Steer. Uh, I, I really, uh, I did enjoy that there were all sort of little little takes on boating references there. But um, Seb, do you want to move us on to, to Jack Grealish, everyone's favourite yeah, football player? Yeah, hesitantly so, because I'm sure Greg's going to get bored of this question. Um, what mm-hmm. is happening with Grealish, Greg? Because I, um, I can make a case for him staying. I mean, I, I remember writing um, an article a few days ago, um, and I had 2018 in mind when New Gaines just came in saw him as being far too um, far too important to the club's future and just said, well, he's not for sale. Um, and can you really argue with £7.5 billion worth of ownership money? Um, 
is that is that realistic or is it just is he is he already on his way out is it kind of a foregone conclusion now do you know what like the landscape has changed quite a lot over the you know the last couple of years it's he he was very close to joining Tottenham and then the club yeah. decided that he was he was not going to go you know the the owner said you're our best player Christian Perzo describes him as the heart the soul and the face of the club we're not selling you um I think this season will be a little bit different I think that if and it's a big if uh, a club come in with the right money then Villa will, Villa will let him go I think um <laughs> Let, let's see if things change in, in the weeks ahead. But I, I believe that if the right money, if they, if they get the right money for him, then um, they'll let him go just purely because, um, you know, of, of where we're at now. And, and I think that he actually would like to move on. I think that he feels that he wants to go and win trophies somewhere and um, he wants to test himself at an elite mm. club. And, and I personally believe that he's at the level where he can go and do that. I, I wouldn't rule out the, the abroad option still, um, you know, possibly in Spain. Uh, he, he he would certainly uh, he certainly wouldn't turn that down if if it came, but we just we just got to wait and see. If it, the, the issue I think with some of the English clubs at the moment is they're not prepared to pay the money for him. You know the, the money that Villa are asking, and that's quite high, I believe, to be around about seventy eighty million, and it's a lot of money, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, firstly, obviously, yeah, seventy eighty million is a lot of money, but who do you reckon that actually? What, what what's a reasonable landing spot for him if he were to leave? Um, I mean, because Manchester United have been the club associated with him for the longest time, but I think that that seemed to be based on the presumption that Villa were going to get relegated and you know, potentially forced into selling him on the cheap. So where, where, where can you actually see him going? Yeah, I mean, you know, Manchester United looked like the right fit previously, but then there were the Pogba issues, Paul Pogba issues, and it's yeah. like feels like he's now very much you know, back in favour and obviously a big part of that team. Um, I still wouldn't rule out United. I just think that they're a club moving in the right places, and if they really, you know, have serious ambitions of, of kicking on, they they do still need to strengthen their squad in various areas. I can't see how Jack Grealish would get into that Man United team straight away because of how they performed. Um, I think he could possibly fit into a Chelsea or Arsenal team. You know, I think I think there are there are places there. I could certainly see him going and doing it on the continent. I just what I don't see is him moving to you know an Everton, a Newcastle, a Leicester, no. one of those sides. I just think that it, that would be seen as, although they they are more established Premier League clubs than Aston Villa, I think it would genuinely be seen as as a as a sidewards move. Um, I couldn't see him sort of rocking the boat doing that for that. But it, it doesn't seem worth it, it does it? No, exactly, exactly. I mean, with the affinity and the love he has for the club, it just it, it wouldn't feel right. You know, I think there would be uh, a bit of a backlash, to be honest, from supporters if he went to one of those clubs. But I think that the majority of Villa fans recognise um, incredible, incredible effort and enthusiasm he's shown during his time at the club, and they'll almost reluctantly let him, you know, go, providing it's to the right club. But but if it's Man United again, Villa fans are going to get so frustrated because. If you remember all, you know, back in the Dwight days York. of Dwight, Dwight York, York yeah, and Mark <laughs> Bosnich and then Ashley Young, just feels like Man United are always there to poach the best players. But. Do you remember that John Gregory <laughs> press conference? Oh, it, was, it was probably about a day after York had, um, they'd agreed a fee with United for York and, and he, he sat down in front of the press and said that, oh yeah, you know, when Dwight told me if I'd have had a gun, I'd have shot him. Can you imagine if someone said that now? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's, it's a man. very different what world. John Gregory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's managing um, in India, I think. Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. We we had someone interview him for the the old Tifo website a really long time oh, ago. Brilliant. But he um he seems to be thriving in India. Um, completely different topic. Let's talk about Douglas Louise because um 
maybe um, Villa fans might disagree. I think it's been absolutely brilliant since the restart. He's one of the main reasons why the club is still in the league. Um, am I right in thinking that Man City have a buyback clause as part of the original um, transfer agreement? Yeah, that that was inserted into the into the deal that, that allowed Villa to buy him for Man City. I think it's um, two years. I think they got active, and um, okay. I don't know any uh, additional details on that. But what I would say right now is um, he probably needs a, a little bit more of a longer period to prove that he can be at that elite level and play for Manchester City. Um, but but also at the same time, I'd be thinking if I was Man City now and I know I've got that clause in there. And, and looking on his last ten performance, which by the way were insane, for 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 a player to to get to maintain those levels for ten games in a row, when the games came around literally every two, you know, three or four days or whatever it was, I think he's you know incredible. He's such a um, just shows how fit he is. You know, I know he's only yeah. twenty two, so he's admittedly needs to be, but understandably, but um, he was brilliant. So yeah, it's it's a little bit of a worry for Villa. It's a it's a hot topic, you know, a, a big talking point amongst supporters at the moment because they feel that like for the first twenty eight games of the season he did nothing, and now you know he's done he's had ten brilliant games and he might they might he might leave now. So it's a worry, it's a worry. I'm going to move us on to talk about Dean Smith, uh, and I'm going to uh, read a line from uh, one of your recent pieces, Greg Evans. One of the criticisms of Smith, however, is that he wasn't tough enough on his players when they were underperforming. He's not a manager to rant or rave. Uh, so what we'd like to know is, does that criticism still exist on the basis that his approach has now been validated by Villa's recovery and uh, the avoidance of relegation? Because after all, doesn't that speak to the healthy morale of the players? Is that how you'd look at it? Yeah, definitely. Can I just answer your question second? Because it was just the way you uh, you asked me that question, Joe. I thought, <laughs> sure. oh, it sounds like I've done something really wrong here. <laughs> it sounds like one of those times when a, when a manager or a CEO calls me up and, yeah. and the first yeah. thing he says, right, Greg Evans, I'm going to read a line from one of your recent stories. <laughs> what do you think about that, Greg? Do you regret yeah, it now, I'm... Greg? Oh, shit. <laughs> no, to be clear, no, you are saying that one of the criticisms that exists, isn't it? It's rather than it being your criticism, it's a criticism that does exist out there. Um, and I just wonder what, what you think about it now. I think one of the reasons that, that Dean Smith deserves a lot of credit is because he showed that he can adapt in times of adversity. And one of the criticisms was, yeah, that, that he that he wasn't um he wasn't harsh enough on his players when they weren't performing and um he, he changed he certainly changed during the lockdown. He, he he made sure that all the players knew exactly what they were doing, but he also got into them a little bit more. And towards the end of the season, there was um, it was the last game of the season actually, the the one one draw with West Ham. Uh, some of the players sort of explained how there was a real dressing down in the in the dressing room at half time that he really got into them and sort of just hammered home some home truths and said that um, you know. Basically, your Premier League careers are, are are on the line here if you don't like if you don't pull your finger out and get this job done. Um, and then I noticed sort of his sideline antics as well. He, there were times where players weren't doing exactly what they were asked to do, and he would really get into them. And that's not something that he'd done previously. So he certainly has changed. And look, in the end, you've got to give him credit because it was it was it was him. That changed the style, that that made the team more defensive, and and that was yeah. the only way that Villa were going to survive. I was going to ask about that actually, because there's been some, or there had been some criticism of his defensive tactics, and also like presumably he has to 
you know, own at least a bit of the responsibility for some of those disappointing signings. Like with with, with that in mind, what would you say? Obviously, he's not going to lose his job now. But what what is what does his job security look like going into going into next season? Yeah, I think the you know Villa want him as their boss next season. He's, he's job safe for now. Uh, the play the players like him. They um, I was told by some of the senior players that. Uh, when there were rumours of him potentially losing his job, that they were very unhappy at that, you know, because they they thought that they were creating this siege mentality and that they were all pulling together. And then when they read reports of which were false, by the way, um, that he was going to lose his job or potentially losing his job, it created a bit of unrest and and uh, uneasiness amongst the group. But yeah, look, it, it, for a large part of this season, it's felt like Villa have struggled and underperformed. So uh, of course, in times of success then um you, you praise you praise the whole team that's what i do you know i praise the whole group every every member has played a part in it but also in times of uh, struggle you all have to sh- um shoulder a proportion of the blame and there were players that dean smith wanted there were players that suso wanted some of them they agreed on some of them they went and watched together others pushed them more from their own points of view um i just think you can't you can't select individuals. You've got to say that it's a team effort, and when they succeed, praise the team. When they don't, get into them at, you know, at various different times. But for now, Dean Smith's the man uh, to take Villa forward, and, and and I really personally hope he does because he's somebody I've known for a long time. He's somebody I known at Warsaw when he was um, coming through as a manager, and really interesting, really because a person, uh, a fellow journalist in the press box at West Ham said to me. Uh, Dean Smith's probably the most normal manager in the Premier League, isn't it? Out of a group of uh, sort of like, you know, big characters and a couple yeah. of weirdos and here and there. But, um, you know, a Dean couple, Smith is just... A couple. Yeah. <laughs> trying to be nice to him. Yeah. Dean Smith is just very normal. You know, he's a very down-to-earth family man who just happened to be a good footballer and now a good football manager. So I hope he succeeds. Greg, I was just going to ask a personal question to end, um, just about the last day at West Ham. Obviously, like there's that invisible line in the press box between professionalism and being a fan, and you know having the vested interests of the team at, at heart. How did you find that as kind of the information was coming in, and, and you and you found out the Bournemouth were were leading at Everton? What was that like? Yeah, nerve wracking. It was a, a roller coaster <laughs> of emotions, really, because it was. Um... You know, after after six minutes, I heard somebody shout from behind me, "Yes, fucking Arsenal are winning one 0 And I thought, oh, "Great, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a pretty that's good a... East End accent. That's not bad." That's... <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 that's a good start. Um, you know, that's that's Arsenal ahead. And um, I actually tweeted something else saying, "Oh, it's a good job that Watford are still shit, isn't it?" <laughs> but <Yes>. after, <laughs> uh, after that, Bournemouth took the lead, and he started to become a bit worried and. Um, there was a chance that, that Mikel Antonio had and he looked certain to score for West Ham. He put it wide and I just thought, wow, we're 15 minutes into this game. If ever the nerves weren't there, you know, they're massively heightened now. But I have to mm. admit, June, in, in the second half, I just felt that Villa were in control and that they would always see it through. The fact that it was always in their own hands going into the last game sort of gave me a bit of confidence. And yeah, it was a, a relief at the end more than anything. Yeah. Well, hey, listen, it was a crazy season for you. Uh, we hope you enjoy uh, any summer holidays that you will get before the start of uh, the next year. And we'd love to have you back again next season, Greg. Thanks for coming. You're welcome. Thank you. I'll be back next season. No problem. Fantastic. And uh, Seb, thank you very much. Thanks, Joe. We'll be... Oh, 
You are joking. It's the bell again. There Can is. The bell? There's, there's this the bank is going to start sounding like uh, we're doing this on purpose. We're really not. Yeah. This is uh, every this single is week. This happens. Anyway, that's uh, just wait for that to stop there, <laughs> and it's stopped. So uh, thanks so much to all of you for listening, uh, downloading, and uh, you know liking, subscribing, whatever it is that you've done. Good work, and uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks. Uh, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>